Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Father, that while we look at your word and while we attend to the praises of your name in worship and in music and in prayer and in all these wonderful ways we can gather, thank you that this is not the only day of the week in which we have this opportunity. Thank you, Father, that it may be one day of many in which we walk in the faith that you've given us with the Spirit's guidance and the way we may minister to others and the way we would minister in our homes and in our families. Father, we see the church at work everywhere we go. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the presence of your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the message of the gospel that we can deliver to so many people throughout our week. But we also confess, Father, that we have not given our proper time and attention to those tasks. Whatever hours we may have given to those tasks, there were others we did not. And we know, Father, that life requires certain things, our time and attention in certain areas for daily life. And you know that too. But you've reminded us in your word that we don't live by bread alone, that the times are short, that the workers are few, that the harvest is ripe. You've given us evidence, Father, that the days are drawing to a close and that men and women who would know your, your truth, who would hear the gospel, still remain untouched. I ask you, Father, that you would give us a greater urgency, a greater dedication. I ask, Father, that our time here on Sunday would be used for that purpose, that we would come away each week and the weeks that remain conscious of the fact that time is, is leaving us, Father, that opportunity is closing, that the world will come to know your return, your, your reign soon. But when that time comes, Father, it will be time for judgment. I ask, Father, that you would give us hearts to reach, to speak your truth. So that as we learn today about things you've done in the past, we would be inspired to walk with you in the future and to be useful to you in service in some better way. Let us have that heart. As we go to your word this morning, Father, seeking to know the truth concerning Joseph and Jacob and the men that we will study in weeks to come, and also, Father, hoping to emulate them in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As it stands today, we still have Genesis 48 in front of us. Um, it's a story of it's the story of Jacob and his inheritance and the birthright and the transference of that birthright. We started that story last week. The topic of inheritance reminds me of a story of a lawyer who was reading out the will of a rich man who had left his his possessions to his family, and he mentioned a number of people in his will. He starts by reading the will, saying, "To you, my loving wife Rose, who stood by me in rough times, as well as in good, I leave you." The house and $2 million. The next the lawyer continues to my daughter, who looked after me in sickness and kept the business going. I leave you the yacht and the business and $1 million. And then the lawyer concluded, and to my brother Dan, who hated me, who argued with me about everything and always said that I wouldn't have the nerve to mention him in my will. Well, hello, Dan. <laughs> Everyone wants to be included in the will, but I think we're looking for something a bit more than just a mention. And in Jacob's family, they're looking for more than just the acknowledgement that they're in the will. Jacob's family is interested in who gets the birthright. The birthright is the yacht. It's the $2 million. It's the big house. It's the, the portion of the inheritance which allocates not only a greater degree of wealth, but also that ownership of the family, the patriarchal role. Who will be the successor? to the Abraham-Isaac-Jacob trifecta. And we studied last week that in the way Jacob assigned the double portion, the birthright inheritance, 
in his family, he effectively puts an end to patriarchal rule in his family. He adopted Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. He made them his own. And then he assigned to each of them an equal portion. So that when all was said and done, the family of Jacob, the 13, now 13 sons, each got an equal portion. And remember, we said that's how you calculate the birthright in any family. You take the number of sons and you add one and divide the inheritance by that number. Well, in Jacob's case, he started with 12 sons, which means he needed to divide his inheritance by 13. And then one of those sons was supposed to get double. But in this case, it's assigned to those two grandsons who are now part of the family. That method had several consequences for the nation of Israel. First, it removed any inheritance from Joseph's family. He, Joseph, and his Egyptian wife have nothing now from Jacob, personally. And if Joseph had had any new sons, those sons would have received nothing from Jacob. Jacob said that they would only get what Joseph could pass along from his own wealth in Egypt. Instead, his sons were directly made heirs of Jacob. Then secondly... Because of what Jacob did, the nation continues forward, the nation of Israel continues forward without a single patriarch running the family any longer. This will never again be a nation of people ruled by a single patriarch because the promises of God embodied in that birthright have now been divided equally among the 13, now 13 tribes of Israel. No longer is there a single man ruling the whole clan. Only in a certain tribe or even in a certain family will there be leaders And then for the nation as a whole, we will eventually will see elders emerge as leaders. And then later there will be a king. And the king brings us to the third consequence of this distribution method. The seed promise. Remember the seed promise? That was the other part of the inheritance that God created for Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. That promise that said through his seed would one day come a Messiah. And through that Messiah's work. Both the nation and the nations of the world would be blessed. Well, that seed promise is still to be assigned. We'll see that come later. It's assigned to Judah, as you know. And so through Judah, there will be a leader who rises to the throne as Messiah and rules over both Israel and the world. And in earlier times, before the Messiah's arrival, there will be other kings coming from that same line who are forerunners of Christ in that regard. David being the chief among those. So. There is the birthright distributed now evenly. There is the seed promise still to come in the tribe of Judah. And the nation now is forevermore seen as a whole, an indivisible whole through which God brings blessing to the world. No longer through one man, but through a nation. Now, since Jacob has promised to adopt Joseph's sons, there is still the matter of the adoption itself. The actual legal adoption has to take place. At this point, he's just promised to do it. And so the scene in chapter 48 starting in verse 8, where we pick up today, goes immediately to the adoption ritual, which includes a pronouncing of blessing upon his newly acquired sons. So in verse 8, we pick up, verses 8 through 11. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now, the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Well, let's begin in this short passage by noting 
that Jacob has been called Israel at key moments in this chapter and including in this passage. And remember what that term means. Whenever the new name is used by Moses as opposed to the old name, it's our sign. It's Moses's key to us, to the reader, to understand that we are watching Jacob move in keeping with the counsel of God's will in an obedient way. Jacob was called Israel, we noticed earlier in this chapter, when it says he worshipped God on his staff and that he decided in those moments to adopt the sons of Joseph. So when Jacob said, I want to adopt these boys as mine, the Bible's calling him Israel for a reason, to tell us this is a God-ordained, a God-intended action on Jacob's part. He's following God's will. He's acting according to God's purposes. In verse 14, we see Jacob making this decision concerning how to bless these boys and he's going to make a surprise decision one that certainly his son joseph did not expect but we know that everything that's happening here is happening according to god's will because moses gives us that key in the name in israel now when we hear about these boys coming before jacob let's get something right in our mind mentally because i know at this point you're tempted by the language to assume a couple of little kids scampering up and coming to dear old grandpa jacob Well, you have to remember timeline. Remember, these boys were born to Joseph before Israel, Jacob, came to Egypt. And now we're at the point where Jacob is about to die. You remember how long we said Jacob lived in Egypt after he got there? 17 years. So these boys are probably, at least in their late teens, probably in their early 20s. All right, so we're not talking about little kids. We're talking about fully grown adults. Now, you might think it's odd that Jacob begins this passage by saying, who are these boys? As if he doesn't know his own grandsons. But then in verse 10, we get the explanation. He's nearly blind. From old age, his eyes are so poor that he can't see anything except if it's up close. So he sees there's figures there. He just doesn't know. Are these the guys? Who are these? And Joseph says, yes, these are your grandsons. So now he knows. And he says, bring them to me. And then it says, Jacob kissed the boys and embraced them. And then at this point, he does something very interesting. He reflects, Jacob reflects on the goodness of God. He says he never expected to see Joseph's face again, much less to see his grandsons. And we know what he's referring to, right? He's referring to all of those years in which he lived thinking that Joseph was dead. And then Jacob gives the Lord credit. He gives him thanks for allowing this reunion to take place. I mean, that's the basis of his Grateful and hard here is the thought that after all those years of thinking he'd never see Joseph again, now he sees him again. Now, why is that interesting? Well, consider it from this point of view. Put yourself in Jacob's sandals for a minute. Remember, Jacob first learned Joseph was gone with a story that said he had been eaten by wild animals. So he thinks he's dead. And that led to years of suffering, years of mourning, years of loss, right? And then he finds out later That all of those years of suffering, all of that consequence was the result of God's eternal plan and purposes. Not happenstance, not bad luck. God made it that way because it put Joseph in Egypt, which was God's purpose. So that in the way that happened, it would be a blessing to the nation of Israel and it would be a fulfillment to God's promises to Abraham. We've studied all of this, right? But consider it from Jacob's point of view. Jacob is sitting here now. Not asking, why did I lose so many years without my son? Not condemning God, not blaming God, not criticizing God for having taken Joseph away, for he knows that's what happened. Instead of harboring all that resentment, 
He's standing in this moment now thanking God for the chance to see Joseph again. I want you to consider how hard that is. To to ask yourself, could I do that? It's fine to see him do it. It makes sense to us when we read it on the page. Seems sensible. But honestly, is that what we do naturally? Had God not taken Joseph in the first place, then Jacob would never have suffered all those things to begin with. Had God not done what he did, Jacob wouldn't even be here in this moment now having to thank God for the reconciliation. In other words, you might think, and I think reasonably you would expect, that Jacob would accuse God in this moment or at some point of creating the problem in the first place rather than crediting God for the solution, for the blessing of a reconciliation. And in my experience, it requires an awful lot of spiritual maturity to do what Jacob just did. To look at a calamity in your life, large ones and even the day-to-day small ones, and step back from that recognizing that all of those things came from the Lord, and as a result, rather than curse God for the grief that they bring, step back and sincerely thank Him for those experiences. That takes a lot of spiritual maturity. We can say those words easily enough, but to feel them in here is not easy. Especially not in the moment. I think any Christian who's read their Bible even a little bit can understand the principle that we thank God for our trials or that we recognize that God can do good things through difficult circumstances. I don't think that statement challenges us very much. But the reality of it happening in our life sure does. It's another thing entirely to experience internal peace in the face of something difficult, of a loss of a loved one or of some financial difficulty, or of some other calamity in life, and turn that back into a peacefulness that thanks the Lord, recognizing that if and when he gives us relief from that hardship, it will still mean that there was some good accomplished in the interim, in the work that he did through it. That kind of spiritual maturity is built only through experience with God, walking with God, and an understanding predicated on a study of the Word of God. That's it. You don't get it any other way. You can't will yourself into a thankful heart around those kinds of circumstances. You get them by experiencing God's blessing and faithfulness in the midst of trial. So inevitably, you have to experience trial to figure this out. And then secondly, having a deep and abiding understanding of what God can accomplish through suffering as he's revealed it through the word of God. How often do people in prison, I wonder... Reflect on the story of Joseph and think about what he must have experienced. And yet seeing the end of his life and the way his story played out, take some encouragement from the fact that unrighteous things happen to righteous people, that unfair things happen to Christians, and that through those unfair experiences, God can do great things. That's a level of spiritual maturity, folks, that transforms your walk with God. It stops us from avoiding trial when we should embrace it and It allows us to learn the lessons from the trial when we experience them and not spend our time always meing about why it happened to me and how come it will always happen to me and why can't God take these problems out of my life. Scripture, when you go to Scripture and you try to understand the reasoning behind God's methodology, you know what you find? And it's always the same answer, by the way. You find Christ. You find Christ. Paul says this in Romans 8.31. He says, What then... Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. 
how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. What Paul just taught us in a very short few words is that since we know God is for us, then that means he's our friend. That means he acts in our best interest. That means he has good intentions for everything that happens to us. That he never falls down on the job. That there is never a moment in which he's looking the other way, something bad happens, and then he turns around and goes, oh my goodness, I didn't mean for that. That never happens. That never, never happens. Therefore, he says, when you experience negative things, it is not that somebody who is against you has temporarily succeeded in penetrating God's protective barrier and has come in and invaded your life. It means that God said, that's a good thing for Steve. It needs to happen for him. And while my mind can't wrap around it and doesn't understand it in the moment, nonetheless, by the counsel of God's word, I have the assurance that there is good in it. Now my job is to look for it. Nothing can stand against us if God is for us. And that means we logically have to conclude that even the worst experiences in our lives have a purpose in God's goodness, no matter how bad. And Paul's best proof of this, as always, is Jesus Christ. If the father can take his perfect son and ask him to put himself on a cross, which is a pretty terrible thing when you think about it then it stands to reason that he could ask us to experience and endure difficult things for good purposes as well. And if the son's obedience to that trial results in salvation for the world, then it stands to reason he can make wonderful things happen out of our obedience to difficulty as well. Knowing that truth lets you respond the way Jacob responded here. He looked dimly, it says, upon the faces of his grandsons, And as he looked at their faces, he didn't bear resentment toward God that he had had opportunity with them cut short or that he had had less time with Joseph than he would have liked. The feeling that welled up in him when he stared at Joseph and at his grandson's faces was thankfulness, gratitude, telling God, thank you for letting me have this moment. Because he knew that what was necessary for Joseph and Jacob for God's eternal purposes was what mattered and what God gave priority to what was important for Jacob was secondary. But yet God found a way to bring the two together in blessing for Jacob. What will the Lord accomplish in our suffering? That's the question we ask. And when you see it, be sure to thank him. So then Jacob adopts. So let's go to the formal ceremony here. It begins in verse 12. Then Joseph took them, referring to the boys, took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. Although Manasseh was the firstborn, he blessed Joseph and said, The God whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked with, I'm sorry, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who is been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the lads. And may my name live on in them. And the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So imagine this scene. You have Jacob seated on the bed. 
And you have Joseph walking his sons to Jacob. And as he gets to Jacob, the sons sit on the knees of Jacob as he's sitting on the bed. So here's a full-grown man sitting on the bed with two full-grown men sitting on his knees. And that's not a reference, by the way, to Joseph's knees. It's to Jacob's knees. Now, that's the point that often causes people to worry about whether these kids were older or younger, because we assume that the only time you put a child on your knee is because you're going to bounce them on the knee. We know that 147-year-old Jacob ain't bouncing two grown men on his knees. So the thinking is there's something amiss here. But if you think that, you're kind of missing the whole point of what's happening in this moment. In that day, there wasn't paperwork, there wasn't a stamp, there wasn't signatures. Official actions were taken in these ways, like covenants. And when you adopt a child, the child was set on the knee of the adult who was adopting to symbolize that these boys were now considered as coming from Jacob's loins. It was a symbol to say, I take these sons, I make them mine when they sat on his knee. They didn't sit there very long. And the point wasn't to have fun bouncing on dad's knee. It was symbolic. And now that symbolism has been established. So now the time comes for the blessing. So they get up off the knee. And they turn and they bow before Jacob, ready to have laid hands on and prayed over. And so they're on their knees now before Jacob and Joseph likewise with them. And so it comes time for Jacob to speak words over the boys. And their reverent position before Jacob is partly out of respect for him, but also out of a recognition that what the patriarch of Israel is about to say comes with the authority of the spirit of God. Remember, patriarchs where the man got appointed to run the nation. Until the last died in Jacob, these men had the authority of the Spirit of God as they were understood to lead the people. And once again, you see the culture's appreciation here for prominence and for honor, and it drives Joseph's actions. This is what Joseph does. Joseph recognizes that his father's going to put his hands out and touch the boys' heads. So he knows how this process is going to work, and he says, my oldest boy, Manasseh, He needs to be the guy that gets the right hand of Jacob on his head. And the reason for that comes out of the culture. In Eastern culture, the right hand symbolizes greater honor than the left at all times. You see that principle reflected in Scripture, and you also see it reflected in culture even today. For example, you see Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, we're told. Not the left, but the right, indicating the position of greatest honor. And then today, culturally, most, if not all, in fact, I don't know of any culture that doesn't do this, but I think all cultures greet with the right hand. In the military, in the U.S. military today, officers, higher ranking military members always stand to the right of lower ranking. So if two people are walking abreast anywhere, they always make sure that they keep the highest ranking person on the right. The flag of the United States is always flown on the right to any other flag. It's always on the right hand of the speaker if it's on the stage or the right hand of the audience if it's in the audience. Where does all this custom come from? From ancient times. The right is a position of honor. So in the adoption ritual, Jacob is going to bestow a blessing on these two boys. And by definition, whichever boy has the right hand of Jacob is getting the greater blessing. And Joseph knows this. And he also knows that in that culture, the older boy would always be the one who has the right to the greater blessing. So he's positioned his sons so that if you were to look at Jacob's face, then Manasseh, the older boy, is on the left because that corresponds to Jacob's right hand. And Ephraim is on the other side. And the Lord is about to make clear, once again, that he retains all authority and all control for how 
the process of inheritance will take place in this family, just as he has done from the very beginning. And he does this best by defying the culture, by defying the tradition, by defying what men would prefer. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we know this is true because he's being called Israel, Jacob decides at the very last minute to do this and completely surprise, confound and frustrate Joseph in the process. Jacob is not doing this in some kind of unconscious manner, as if his hands mysteriously moved on their own. He knows full well what he's doing. He knows how Joseph would have positioned the boys. He knows that that means if he's going to do it the way he wants, he's going to have to do this. And he does. And he positions his hands so that now Ephraim is getting the greater blessing, even though he is the younger. Then he pronounces a blessing. And notice he pronounces it, it says, upon Joseph. Because by adopting these sons, Jacob is honoring Joseph with the birthright. Now, understand, Joseph's not getting anything. But in terms of family, the tribe of Joseph is receiving the birthright. So by definition, that's a blessing. That's an honor to Joseph. But in the way he did it, Joseph himself sees none of it. So he's blessing Joseph. And in the blessing, he says, the Lord has been my shepherd all my life, both low points and high points. All of Jacob's life, he's been under the care of the Lord. And he says, that care was the result of God's promises to me. And then in verse 16, for the first time, clearly, we see Jacob reveal his faith in the Messiah. He specifically says he has faith in Jesus Christ, though he wouldn't have known his name. Look what it says. In the beginning of verse 16, you see a continuation of the sentence that began at the end of verse 15. So from verse 15 to verse 16 is one sentence. And in verse 15, look what Jacob did. He acknowledged the Lord was his shepherd, God. Then in verse 16, look what he calls God in general. He describes him as the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. He calls God the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Well, this reference to angel is none other than the angel of the Lord who we've seen already appearing to Abraham and previously or and then later to Isaac and then finally to Jacob. The angel of the Lord, which we studied at that point, is an Old Testament reference to the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, before he became incarnate as man in his existence before he was born to the Virgin Mary. And so as the angel of the Lord appeared to Jacob at various times, Jacob has come to know that second person of the Godhead as God. And here he says specifically, the angel of the Lord or the angel is the one who redeemed me from all evil. That Hebrew word for redeemed is really important. It's goel. The more common way that's translated in the Old Testament, kinsman, redeemer. As in Boaz out of the book of Ruth. Jacob is calling the angel of the Lord his kinsman redeemer. He understood that God himself would become his kinsman. The only way God could become a kinsman, a relative, to use our term, to Jacob, is if he's born into the family of Israel, born flesh, later in the tribe of Judah, in Bethlehem. He is confessing his understanding of the promise God has made through his forefathers, that there would be a redeemer, God himself, sent in the form of man to rescue men from all evil. Christ, in other words. Now, 
Did he understand that he would be born in Bethlehem, that his name would be Jesus, that he would die on a cross as opposed to some other way? Did he understand all that? No, I'm sure he didn't. Or perhaps he didn't. It doesn't matter. To the essence of the gospel, those details come after the fact. What he knew was he had faith in a promised redeemer as the source of his salvation, as the one who would remove all evil from him. The gospel. Knowing the faithfulness of the Lord and the salvation that he promised was the basis for Jacob having confidence to bless these boys in this way. To say the God who saved me is the God who redeems for all. The God who has given me promises is the God who will bless you. And he asked the Lord to bless his new sons. That their names would live on, that their posterity would live on, that they would become a multitude just like the other sons. Now as Jacob pronounces these words over Joseph's sons... Joseph watches all of this in horror. He watches all of this wondering perhaps if dear old dad has gone a bit senile in his last days with the whole crisscrossy thing going on there. What is that, dad? And so Joseph tries to stop him. Look what he does in verse 17. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. And he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, by you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So Joseph, I love this scene, and it's one I'm sure we've all heard about at some point. Joseph trying to stop his father. It's a pretty presumptuous move, actually, for Joseph to grab the hand of the patriarch in the middle of a blessing. You just don't do this kind of thing. And he goes to grab it. Now, notice what he's worried about. He doesn't take the hand off of the older and try to move it to the younger. He takes the hand off the younger to move it to the older. What he's worried about is who gets the greater blessing. He doesn't really care about the other one. But Joseph is doing something classically wrong. This is the classic response to God at work for so many of us. Jacob here is working according to the Lord's intent. He's being called Israel for that very reason. So we know... That what's happening is what's supposed to happen according to God's will, right? Joseph, on the other hand, looks upon this situation and he says, you know what? I got to fix this. This ain't right. Now, I'm sure he didn't think it was God. I'm sure he thought it was his father doing the wrong thing. But at the end of the day, he was trying to fix what God was doing. Physician, heal thyself, as Jesus says. Because the only difference between us and Joseph in this story is the eye makeup. And maybe even then, I'm not sure for some of us. This is so common, but it doesn't come in this way, right? We don't step in and grab someone's hand necessarily, and the physical aspects of it are not ours. But what we do, and what I tend to do in my own experience, if I'm not careful, is we defend culture. We defend tradition. We defend human institutions over Scripture, over God's will, over God's work. Remember, tradition in this case was right hand on Manasseh, left hand on Ephraim. God says, you know what, I think I'm going to switch it up this time just to show you who's in control. And we freak out. Pastors look a certain way. Pastors' wives look a certain way. Churches look a certain way. Music looks a certain way. 
the order of service looks a certain way. Evangelism looks a certain way. Giving looks a certain way. There's all these traditions. There's all these rules. My favorite ones of late, and I get this a lot, evolution. I run into people who just are good, solid Christians who read their Bible, study it, know it inside and out. But somewhere around chapter 7 or 8 of Genesis is when it becomes literal. And everything before that isn't. And I always tell them the same thing. I say, you know, when you find yourself arguing against Scripture in support of the world's views, somehow you got on the wrong side. That should worry a Christian. Or water baptism. That's the classic dilemma. Do we dunk? Do we sprinkle? We defend the traditions rather than defending what we find on the pages of Scripture. Here again, we're like Joseph trying to switch the hands that God's in the process of crisscrossing just to make a point to us. Where does your allegiance lie? Christians who love the Lord and love the Bible should not find themselves routinely arguing the world's positions on important issues or tradition over Scripture, for that just shows us that we're like Joseph trying to fix things to suit what we're comfortable with or what we've grown up with, rather than following God. If you've learned anything in the course of our study of Genesis, I'm hoping what you've learned is that the Lord delights to show himself in unexpected ways, especially in the face of tradition or of culture that works against his purposes. He loves to rock those carts so that we never get into the mode of autopilot following those things instead of following him. Now, there are, there are standards. There are limits. There are procedural things. There are rules of order. There are certain qualities of Christian living that are there for good reason, and the scriptures back those up. I'm not saying it's a free-for-all, and I'm certainly not saying that a contrarian point of view is always healthy. What I'm saying, though, is that when we want to do what we prefer over what God's at work doing, we diverge from him. And the clearest evidence of that is when we are defending things that cannot be defended in Scripture. God wants us to see him at work through us. He does not want us to go on autopilot. And Jacob responds to Joseph's attempts to correct him in the right way, saying, I know, I know what you want. I know what tradition says, but I also know what the Lord wants. This is no mistake. This is not Jacob just having a a seizure in the moment. This is Jacob saying, I know I'm supposed to do this, and I understand why you want it to be different. But the fact is, Manasseh is not going to receive the greater blessing. He'll receive great things. He'll have his portion, but he's not going to have the greater. The younger boy, Ephraim, will. In fact, in the history of Israel as a nation, the word or the name Ephraim, the tribe Ephraim, becomes a synonym for the entire northern kingdom of Israel, just as... Judah becomes a synonym for the whole southern kingdom of Israel. And even when they were combined as a single nation, sometimes they would use the word Ephraim for the whole thing. Now, Ephraim's not going to be the largest tribe numerically. In fact, Manasseh is actually bigger. But in terms of prominence, in terms of honor, they are the chief tribe. Isn't it interesting that the birthright holder in Ephraim and the seed promise holder in Judah become the two names that represent the nation from that point forward? It's not coincidental. And by placing Ephraim before Manasseh, you notice in verse 3, when he pronounces the blessing, he doesn't say Ephraim will be greater. He alludes to it by putting Ephraim's name first and Manasseh's name second, where traditionally it would have been the other way around. And that's what is said in verse 20. He put Ephraim before Manasseh, indicating his prominence. Then finally, Jacob ends with an important prophetic statement concerning Joseph. He reminds him of something that had been said earlier through Abraham, that they would be in Egypt, but not forever. Now, in Joseph's case, he goes out in a coffin, but he goes out. 
And in keeping with what God promised, they would find their way back to the promised land. And then look in verse 22. It's an interesting little nugget, but it does demonstrate, once again, faith. Jacob says, I'm going to give you one portion more than your brothers. But the word portion there in Hebrew is very interesting. In fact, I'm not sure why the translators chose to translate the word as portion. It's literally the word shoulder, like a part of a pig, the shoulder of an animal, which in that sense could be seen as a portion, like a portion of the animal. But it doesn't really fit, does it? Why did he use the word shoulder? Well, when I tell you what that word is in Hebrew, you'll understand. Shechem. Remember Shechem, the town in in Canaan? That word means shoulder. He literally uses the word Shechem here in Hebrew. What he says is, I give you Shechem above all your brothers. Now, why did he do that? Well, this is the town, if you remember, where Simeon and Levi go in and murder all the people and take over the town. Ever since then, that property has belonged to Jacob. Now, we understand the boys did it the wrong way, but the effect of that was that Jacob now owned that town. They took it over. So this is now Jacob's one piece of the promised land that he owned during his lifetime. And here he is saying to Joseph, you get that property. In my inheritance, I've handed out everything to my sons, but to you I give my land in Shechem. Later, when Joseph leaves in the Exodus, when they carry him out, The people of Israel, when they first come into the land after they cross the River Jordan, they bury him in exactly this place, in Shechem, in the place that Joseph is now receiving from Jacob. And then later in John's gospel, in chapter four, when Jesus meets the woman at the well in Samaria, they're in that same location because this place Shechem is Jesus day. It was called Samaria. She's in that location when she meets with Jesus. And that's why she asks him, he says, are we supposed to worship here? This is the well that Jacob gave to Joseph. She's talking about this moment, Shechem, being awarded to Joseph. Why is Jacob doing this? Because he knows by faith in God's word that one day not only will he be buried in the land, but so will Joseph. And he's assuring Joseph the place where he will be buried. His actions, a beautiful example of faith at work. Making decisions about life and even death that show his trust in God's promises. And his faith was certainly rewarded. I pray we would have the same walk of faith exhibited in action. Let's go to prayer and to communion. Heavenly Father, give us courage to show faith in action, Father. We know the script. We've heard the words. We've confessed. And we've been baptized. For those who haven't, Father, I pray you'd be bringing them to that conclusion as well, that these are the steps that must be taken for eternal life to to believe and to confess. And then following that, having been saved, that we would take a step of baptism to show our faith. But for those, Father, who have, we have been given these examples to follow so that we may give evidence of our faith. But I pray, Father, it won't stop there. That like Jacob and like Joseph, to the last day of our life, to our last breath, we are thinking about the kingdom. We are acting according to our faith. We are planning for that day in which we will return resurrected and in glory, not focused on today, but focused on eternity and using today to reach that goal. Thank you, Father, for the reminder that we give thanks in our trials, understanding that you are for us and therefore all that happens is according to your will. We thank you, Father, for the exhibited faith of a man who knew of the Redeemer even before he had the Gospels. How much more so should we know the truth having seen it delivered. 
And I ask, Father, that as we go to communion, that we would remember the death that made all of this possible. In your son Jesus, I pray. Amen.